And the kids, kindergarten through second grade, if you want to go to your kind of line up and y'all can start heading towards your story time. And if you're staying in, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, if you have one of the inserts, uh, one of the inserts, I printed out the passage, so it might be helpful to follow along here or in your own Bible uh, as well. And as we turn, I want you to think about how sometimes we have kind of this image of certain figures that are just larger than life, and sometimes it can be kind of disorienting to remember they weren't always that way. This past week, I started reading a, a biography that had Tom Brady as one of the characters, and he's uh, you know, kind of considered, he's in the, in the debate, the argument, for the greatest quarterback of all time. And it was really intriguing because even in his sophomore year at Michigan, uh, he was the fourth-string quarterback. And he almost quit because he was only getting two repetitions with the, the starters per practice. And he went to the coach and was like, what am I doing? You know, I'm not even getting any opportunities. So you think, you know, sometimes people come a long way. And we're going through Exodus. And, you know, Moses kind of stands uh, in both the Christian and the Jewish tradition as this colossus of a man like this larger-than-life figure. He's one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever seen. He's one of the greatest teachers that the world has ever seen. And sometimes it can be a little disorienting to think, all right, he didn't always, uh, he wasn't always that. He didn't start out as that. And in fact, it took him a long time to get to where he ends up. And so where we're looking at in Exodus 3 and chapter uh, 4 the Moses we encounter is not this kind of colossal figure. It's a person who's deeply insecure. It's a person who's very uncertain of himself. It's someone who's apparently unworthy of the task that's been laid before him, and he knows it, and he feels it. If you have in your bulletin, uh, you got a kind of a literary outline of Moses' engagement with God, because chapter 3 and chapter 4 is one of the longest conversations where you get back and forth between God and a person in the Bible. And we've looked at it in kind of three different ways. We've looked at it as how do you have this life-changing encounter? Because in chapter 3 and 4, it's one, one of the most famous passages in all of kind of world literature. Moses encounters God at the burning bush, and he's never the same. So how do you have a life-changing encounter with the living God? That was two weeks ago. And then we're looking at this conversation between God and Moses. And last week we looked at kind of God's side because God declares his name and how central his name is. But what I want to do this morning is look at kind of Moses and his deep insecurity and think, all right, how does God overcome those insecurities? And you can look at the kind of the progression of the, the argument. You know, in, in chapter 3, Moses says, I'm not the man you need. He's aware of his inadequacy. And then chapter 313, he says, look, I don't have the, the knowledge I need. I don't know what to say. And then in 4.1, I'm, I'm just going to fail. I'm going to be ineffective, even if I say that. And then in 4.10, it's not that I don't have the knowledge I need. It's I don't have the skill I need. I don't have the uh, eloquence, so I'm incompetent. And then finally, it gets to the heart of the matter in 4.13. I just don't want to go. And it's unwillingness. And so you look at that progression, and can you sympathize with Moses? I mean, think about a time in your life where you felt that, where you felt inadequate, where you felt that you didn't have the, the knowledge you needed. You're aware of your inability. 
or the time where you just felt that you were just ineffective, you were just failing, or you felt incompetent or just unwilling. I mean, think about, can you sympathize? Maybe it's in the context of your work where you get put in a situation and you say, I don't know what to do. Maybe it's in the context of a difficult, challenging, relational situation. You think, I don't know what to say. Or maybe it's just in life and how you, uh, you know, raise your children and engage. Inadequacy, inability, ineffectiveness, in incompetence. Can you relate? So what we're going to look at is, all right, how does God overcome that for Moses? What does he give him? And then how can he overcome it with us? And what does he give us? So we're kind of moving through chapter 3. is kind of uh, each one of those objections or excuses, God then answers so chapter 3 is kind of despite God's response to Moses' objections and the revelation of God's name and a preview of what's going to come, Moses is still very hesitant. So chapter 3, that's what he hears. God promises him that he's going to be with him, tells him his name. Moses says, I don't know what to say. And God gives him exactly, All right, you say this to these people. So say this. And then there's a shift in tone in chapter 4 because the second half of kind of the dialogue, the tone changes, and now Moses really starts to protest. And you can see the resistance coming. So there's a, a couple movements, and we're going to pick up with that central kind of objection that Moses makes on the literary outline starting in chapter 4, and we're going to look at kind of those last three. So let's look at this first objection. Now I'll just kind of read through it. Now if you have this sheet... What I've done here, I've tried to kind of arrange it and color-coded it so you can see who's saying what, so you can get the back and forth. And then some of it is a really literal kind of wooden translation of the Hebrew that makes really bad English, but it's going to pull out some of the kind of personal and conversational uh, dynamics. So starting verse 1, then Moses answered, what if they will not believe me? Or what if they will not listen to my voice? Or what if they will say... Yahweh did not appear to you. Then Yahweh, and one of the things to translate Lord, put in Yahweh, so you can see one of the key themes is the dynamic between the back and forth of the names. What name does he say? What name? How do they respond? So Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And again, Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said. Or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I am not a man of words, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. Then Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And he said, Oh, my Lord, send who you will send. 
Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. So notice back up to the very first objection that we have here. This is the central one. This one that I'm going to fail. I know I'm not going to succeed. And then kind of the way it works, there's this little phrase like, what if? And then there's three kind of boom, boom clauses right after it. There's one if over it. And then three, what if they won't believe me? What if they won't listen to my voice? What if they say Yahweh has not appeared to you? So it's almost like he's living in the land of what if. And it's all negative. What if they say this? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen? What if? Now, it's interesting. So much of our life is lived in the realm of what if. But whether it's the negative world of what if or the positive world depends, uh, kind of is one of the most uh, impactful things in your life. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, what if God crushes Pharaoh? What if God does exactly what he said he's going to do and leads us out? What if Pharaoh humbles himself and repents and sends us away with a party? What if the people listen? What if the people celebrate this redemption that we're going to accomplish? So it's not so much the problem that he's living in the world of what ifs. It's what, what ifs he's living in. What if they don't believe? What if they don't listen? I find it interesting. He's worried. His first major worry is the people's response to him, not Pharaoh's. And so maybe he just starts here because that's the first thing God told him to do. You're going to go first to the people and then to Pharaoh, and then this is going to happen. So maybe he's just saying All right, even the, the first part is not going to happen. And maybe notice what he's worried about, the kind of the core worry. What if they say, Yahweh has not appeared to you? What if they call me a liar? They're not going to believe. They're not going to listen. They're going to call me a liar. And I wonder what Moses is thinking here. What's fueling that assumption that they're not going to listen and that he's going to fail? I mean, does he think, you know, maybe he thinks, you know, they're just a slavish rabble incapable of being led or maybe he's thinking back about the last time he tried to intervene on their behalf and it didn't go so well in many ways he's got some good reasons to think they're not going to listen he's been there before and it didn't work last time so what is he thinking or better question is kind of what are you thinking what what if world are you living in is it the what if world that's fueled by the negative assumption about people, places, yourself, others? Or is it the what-if world fueled by God's promises and living in faith about what he could do, what he said he's going to do? One of the remarkable things is God has told him that when you... So God already told him, you're going to go to the elders, and they're going to believe you. And then you're going to go to the people, and they're going to believe you. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and he is not going to believe you. I'm going to have to compel, you, compel him with a mighty hand to let you go. So he's kind of, Moses has been told how it's going to go. But this first one, he doesn't, he doesn't believe. And then notice now how God responds in 
second phrase, God's going to give him three signs that are meant to both uh, to, to encourage and motivate Moses's, Moses's faith. And it's kind of interesting, actually, you kind of look at them, it's almost as if the Lord is conceding the point. Okay, just your words are not going to be enough for them to listen and motivate. So he gives them these three signs, and it's really important when you look at the Bible, the different signs, like Jesus' miracles and the Gospel of John is structured around these seven signs. And these are not things that are like party tricks, like, woohoo, look what I can do. Isn't this impressive? I mean, these are things that are intentional. They're, they're physical demonstrations that are meant to point you to a spiritual reality. So it's not like, you know, uh, or we'll, we'll just kind of get in. So it's a picture of his power that are foreshadowing the plagues. So each of these signs is meant to teach Moses and the people something. So we're supposed to look at, all right, what is the, the symbolism? What is it meant to teach us? So notice this first one. What's in your hand? This is a staff. This is the shepherd kind of staff. Some translate it's just a stick. But the shepherd's staff says, throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And then Moses was afraid. Now, this is one of those things. I mean, Moses, for the last 40 years, had been a shepherd in the wilderness, in the desert. Like, he had seen, it's not his first time he's seen a snake. You know, it's one of those, like, if you're in a scenario where there's professionals, and then the professionals get scared, and you're not, you should get scared, too. And so he, like, he's, he's aware of what kind of animal this is. And he's terrified. And Moses runs. Notice what God tells him. Put your hand and catch it by the tail. Now Moses, now you might not be thinking, like you, you might not be a uh, crocodile hunter or have watched too many Jack Randall episodes. But it doesn't take a whole lot of sense to know that if you have a deadly venomous snake, one place you don't want to grab it is by the tail. So even in this, Moses could be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, okay, like, like, I can see you're not really from around here. <laughs> Maybe you don't know how these things work. But if, like, when you have venomous, deadly snakes, there's a certain procedure in how you handle them. And gravity by the tail is not on that procedural list. And so what's God trying to teach him? I mean, one, the snake is symbolic. Because the kings of Egypt, they wore the crown with the urus is what it called. So the crown is this cobra that's coiled on the crown, and it's in a position where it's ready to strike. And so kind of in Egyptian mythology, if you look, you see in the, it always had these multicolored, it was a multicolored cobra. And the idea is that the, the cobra, uh, which is the god Amon, A-M-O-N, had ingested the power of the sun god Ray, it had internalized the sun god Ray, and it had become the most powerful being on the planet. So part of Pharaoh even has that on his headdress, symbolizing you know who he is, the power of the divine to rule over the world of men and women. And so part of the lesson here is that he's going to throw down his staff, and uh, then he's going to grab it. It's a symbolic way of pointing to Moses that he's going to have victory over that serpent and remind him who's really the Lord over heaven and earth. But even in this little scenario, it's going to take some faith in, in Moses. He's going to have to obey. He's going to have to do something that might make him very uncomfortable. First sign. Look at the second sign. 
He tells him, so put it in his cloak. Basically, he's got a little outer coat, and there's a pocket kind of up front that's next to his chest. He says, take the hand, put it in that pocket, and then pull it out. And when he pulls it out, it's leprous. It's leprosy. That's a skin disease. In this world, that is a death sentence. It was considered extremely, was considered extremely contagious. You get leprosy. You'd be unclean. You get put out of the community. What is this symbolizing? I think one of the things that symbolizes that God has the power, both to heal and to make whole. But our contagion, our problem, comes from in here more than it does out here. And even then, there's an act of obedience. He's got to obey. Put your hand in, pull it out, put it back in. He has to listen. I think this is God's power over sickness and health. And then the third one, he says, all right, this third sign is I'm going to take water of the Nile, and it's going to turn to blood. I think this is power, demonstrating God's power over the elements of nature. The the Nile is the source of their life. And uh, the corruption of the Nile would have have been a, a powerful symbolic symbol to the Egyptians. You know, their famed fertility at this time is one of the, it's the richest country in the world because the land is so fertile. And so one uh, historian said the river was endless in its bounty and the people would sing praise songs to the river. It is the father of life. It is the mother of us all. So it's a manifestation of their God, happy, H-A-P-I. And they believe the divine spirit uh, indwelled it to bless the land. So this is a powerful demonstration of who really has the power of both life and death. Water is transformed into blood. So these signs that he's giving, and part of Moses, he's got to learn the lesson. He's got to see the signs. They're signs that the Lord has the power to transform. The Lord has the power to heal and make whole. And the Lord has the power to conquer his enemies. But even for Moses, the channel by which that power is going to flow is through his obedience, even in those small things. It's interesting in the biography of Tom Brady when he was so frustrated that he's only getting two reps with the starters per practice. One of the assistant coaches said, well, if that's all you get, make sure those are the two best uh, reps that anyone sees. And so he's sort of pouring all of his energy. Okay, these, these, these two, each one about 45 seconds. So I will make each of these 45-second moments as, as good as I possibly can. And it's similar to what God's telling Moses here. Right? Obedience is going to be the pathway that my power comes. And right now for you, it's obedience in these small things. Reach out and grab it. Put your hand back in. Pick out the water. Pour it out. You look at, you know, in terms of resources, like what does Moses have? He just has a stick. And that's going to be enough in terms of fitness for the task. And one thing, part of the, the symbolism of the cloak is that Moses' problem is primarily here, not out here. But the Lord is going to be the source of healing and wholeness. And then part of the symbolism of the opposition, that Moses standing against this superpower looks like a foregone disaster. But the Lord is more than a match for what faces him. So Moses, if he's acting alone, all of these things uh, are true. And he's got no hope. He is inadequate. He is unable. He will be ineffective. He is incompetent. But the promise of the Lord is that he will be with him, his power. So if Moses is going to experience that power, he needs both trust 
and courage. He's got to yield to God's command and grasp the snake by the tail, yield to God's command. So just think about your own life. You know, what small acts of obedience and trust are placed before you right now? Maybe you find yourself in a position or situation that you'd rather not be in. What are the small acts of faithfulness that you can control or God is calling you to? You know, what signs does God give us? You know, I would pause here and just think about, you know, on the one hand, wouldn't it be great if God just gives you these signs where uh, you could you could know his, you know, we're all kind of in some ways like Gideon where we, we put out things and, okay, if this happens, this must be what the Lord uh, wants me to do. When I was in high school, this, this might really surprise some of you, but me and my two best friends, we could never get a date. And so we just played Nintendo and basketball all the time. And we used to play this, this game where we would shoot three-pointers. And our game was, okay, if you make nine out of ten, then you can, ask, you can ask April Brooks to the prom, and she'll say yes. And then we try, and then there would be different people to, and, uh, to learn to shoot really well, but never, never actually went to the prom. So what signs does God give us? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you had things like that? Well, how does God prove himself to us? Many people are looking for a sign from God, and they say, man, I'd love to know for certain that God is there and that he really is who he says he is. And I'd be willing to believe if I could just see something for myself. And, you know, the truth is that God has given us the most extraordinary sign we could ever imagine, the most miraculous sign there is. Jesus of Nazareth called himself the Christ, and he claimed to be God's son. And then when his earthly life ended, he died on a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that his death paid the penalty for our sins. And then when Jesus was buried, if he had remained in the tomb, there'd be no signs that his word was true and that he accomplished what he said he came to do. But his resurrection that we celebrate every Easter and celebrate every Sunday is a sign that his word can be trusted. And his person is true. It's recorded in scripture. It's confirmed by the historical accounts of the people that saw him. So anyone who's unsure about who God is and that he loves them, that's where you look. That's the sign. Don't shoot three-pointers out in your backyard or don't look for some uh, you know, other random sign. Look to the empty tomb, the sign. All right, so look at the next objection. The next objection, the fourth one, uh, these signs aren't enough. Moses still needs more. And then notice he says, oh my Lord, I am not, somebody said, I'm not eloquent, literally, it's not, I'm not a man of words. And so he might be paralleling, all right, you have, Moses is showing he's a man of action, he acts, but he's not a word, he's, I'm not a word man. Words are not my, my thing. And it's either in the past, so I've never been this. And then some come and say, all right, what's he saying here? Or he says, I'm not in the past, and I am not now since you started talking to me. So says, all right, we're having this encounter, and don't think this encounter has changed me in any way. And that's actually part of the problem, because that is exactly how God changes you. He changes you by an encounter with the living God through his living word. But Moses says, no, I haven't changed. And then he says, I'm heavy. Like my, my mouth is heavy. My tongue is heavy. So I'm not, I'm not a man. 
but not a man of words. And you wonder, right, what's, he, what's he saying? Is this some type of like psychological, like would we, like would he score really, what's the introvert, extrovert, would he be a super high introvert? Is that what he's saying? Is this some type of like physical thing? Like there's a long history going back to the Septuagint, 300 uh, B.C. of believing that Moses had speech impediment, that he stuttered. Is that what he's saying? Or what's the real problem? I think we'll get to the real problem in a second, but what Moses doesn't realize is that he, he doesn't have to be an orator. His job is just to be a reporter. This is what God has said. His effectiveness does not depend on his eloquence. His effectiveness depends on his obedience. Now, I wonder if there's any of you who need to know that in your life right now. Your effectiveness does not depend on your eloquence or your skill or your savvy or what you can do. Effectiveness depends on your obedience. It was interesting, his objections are both irrelevant and irreverent. There's an element of, I haven't changed since you started talking to me. This is who I am. And notice what God says. He gives a series of rhetorical questions. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. This is the fourth time God has told him to go. And each time I said, oh, okay, well. So he says, all right, go, go, go. Now he's starting to run out of excuses. And so we see in the end, he says, send someone else. There's that phrase, oh, my Lord, send. Now this is an interesting phrase. You know, the best way to translate that is send someone else. But it's uh, kind of a euphemism. And most Hebrew scholars will look at this and say, there's some mockery and sarcasm here. Because God has already told Moses, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And then Moses responds, Lord, send who you will send. Okay, send who you'll send. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Send who you'll send. And it's like, hmm. It's kind of similar. I mean, one of the problems with kind of the written text is you don't get the tone. And all of you who have communicated with other humans know how important often tone is. Like sometimes my wife will say, like, why, like, why are you mad? I'm not mad. <laughs> of course you're not. Uh-huh. What do you think I'm mad? <laughs> and see, so you don't really get the tone here. But Moses' response is, oh, send who you'll send. You say, I am who I am, just send who you'll send. And then notice this is the anger of the Lord is now kindled. And so the real issue is not Moses' skill or ability. It is his willingness to trust and obey. So quickly, just a couple lessons that I've got that we can pull out of here. Uh, my first lesson is be the stick. Be the stick. God can take ordinary things, and he can accomplish extraordinary things with them. Notice what Mo God tells Moses. There's not Aaron, your brother. All right, so now his brother's getting pulled into this. We're going to start looking at next week. Is that a good, you know, I don't, is that good or bad? The brother gets dragged along, but go get Aaron. He's going to come meet you. He's going to be glad. And then I'm going to tell you and him, and I'm going to teach you what you're supposed to say. I'm going to give you the words that you were to say. And then in the end, and take in your hand that staff. Or say, take in your hand that stick, and you will do all of these things. So be the stick. And this comes from Francis Schaeffer. So you know Francis Schaeffer, you know, the 
kind of towering figures of kind of evangelicalism of the 20th century and or last century. And when he was a young minister, he was really struggling with his own sense of insecurities, his own sense of inadequacies. His first couple ministerial experiences went very poorly for him and everyone around. And he did a study one time that really kind of revived him. But he, it was reading this verse, and it just struck him when God says, what's in your hand? And he says, a stick. I ain't going to throw it on the ground. And, and so he did a study all throughout Genesis through Deuteronomy and just studied Moses' stick, his staff. And so, you know, there's a, like, it begins as just a stick. And by the end of the story, I mean, this thing is a part of some pretty impressive uh, interactions. I mean, it's the stick that he turns into a serpent. And then it's the stick that's going to turn into a serpent and swallow up Pharaoh's magician's staff. And it becomes the staff that Moses uses to initiate each of the ten plagues. Then it becomes the staff that he's going to strike the Red Sea and it's going to split. And it's going to be the staff that he's going to hit the rock and it's going to flow with water. And it's going to be the staff that as long as Moses can hold it in the air, they will be victorious in battle. And then there's a verbal transition because it starts as the, the rod of Moses and becomes the rod of God. And Francis Schaeffer thought, man, if God can use a stick that powerfully, I mean, I guess he can use me too. He can use me. The only, the only question is, do I become Francis Schaeffer or do I become the Francis Schaeffer that belongs to God? Do I consecrate myself to be used by him? So be the stick. If he can use the stick, he can use us too. He says this, he says, I couldn't believe how God could use that stick of dead wood for such great things. It was transformed from the rod of Moses to the rod of God. Even though we are so limited and weak, limited in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, I too can become useful as long as I'm in God's hands. So to be fully consecrated to him. What would it mean to be set aside normal things, but this now is set aside specifically for God? So 30 minutes in the morning, set aside for God. Sunday morning in elementary school, set aside for God. What can you set aside for him? And then I think the second thing we learn is what really matters. You know, one of the things we'll see as we go through all throughout Exodus is that the, what God is calling them to is obedience and trust. It's not great heroic deeds. It's obedience and in trust. We'll see as we make our way through that the primary mark, indeed the hallmark of God's people, is that they obey his word. They hear his voice and they obey his word. There's a beautiful rhythm in Exodus 40 and how the book ends. There's it's seven intentional lines, and Moses obeyed the word of the Lord. See, his greatness is not marked by the things he accomplishes. His greatness is marked by his willingness to obey. This is the point of Moses' call, and this is how God responds in the whole variety of all of his needs and inadequacies. God is going to offer himself and say, do you trust me? Do you trust me? You know, it's kind of interesting, even in 5 and 6, he doesn't alter Moses' self-awareness, so now all of a sudden he feels competent. 
He doesn't actually change the circumstances for Moses. In some ways, things are about to get worse. And he doesn't even guarantee the immediate success. He doesn't tell him, all right, you just got to think positively and don't be so negative, negative, negative. So what does God do? He offers himself. And to all of us, this is the core of the burning bush moment is God extending an invitation. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Will you go on trusting me? That's even part of the signs. Do you trust me that I can take ordinary things like this snake and turn it into a, or this stick and turn it into a potent living force? Do you trust me to be the one who can cancel the iniquity and the contagion of our hearts and give you a new nature? Do you trust me to have power over the enemy? Do you trust me? And so that's a question for us all. Do we trust him? That's the call. And then as we close, I just wanted to finish with, as I was going through this passage, I just couldn't help think uh, about who, you know, the hero really is. You know, it's interesting. The last thing God says to Moses is take this staff and get going. In one sense, God's not going to take no for an answer, whether Moses is willing or not. And in the end, he's going to overcome all of these objections and by God's authority, with God's assistance, symbolized by that mighty staff, he's going to go back to Egypt. And he's going to bring the deliverance that God declared and that God promised. And then God will promise to Moses that one day I'm going to raise up a prophet just like you. And I'm going to send another prophet to the people. And he will come from among his brothers. And I'm going to put my words into his mouth, and I'm going to tell all my people, listen to him. You know, we have, we know that greater prophet. He's going to send another deliverer to deliver us from the most impossible enemy that can keep us bound, which is sin and death. So there's some similarities between Christ and Moses, but there are some kind of dissimilarities. In some way, I'm thankful that Jesus wasn't like Moses, and one of the more obvious ones is his willingness to go. You know, kind of the title is when Moses responds to God in, uh, in chapter 3, he says, here I am, and then by the end of it, he's saying, send somebody else. <laughs> here I am, don't send me. And aren't you thankful that when the time came for Christ to step out of heaven, to make himself nothing, to take on the form of a servant, to uh, obey the Father even to the point of death on the cross, he didn't say, here I am, send someone else. Because there's no one else who could do it. There's no one else who could fully enter in to be fully human and both uh, fully God. And even in his darkest moment when he says, oh, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. And so we praise him and thank him for he alone can make the perfect atonement. You know, Christ, our savior, our deliverer, who said, here I am, send me. So let's praise and thank him for that. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the way that you overcome all of our senses of fear and inadequacy. And we praise you ultimately for sending your son who did not come with hesitation, but came fully, came joyfully, made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, gave his life so that we could find ours. 
So I pray for everyone here in this room. We ask that you help us to find and know that life. In your name I pray. Amen. Each week here at Trinity, we come to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table, very similar to the three signs that God gave Moses, it's a, it's a sign that we use very normal, ordinary things, and they point us to a deeper, more profound spiritual reality. So the bread that we take, it's a, not even real bread. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but what it's supposed to symbolize is that this symbolizes uh, Christ says, my body was broken for you so your body can find healing and wholeness. So just like that second sign, we see this is where we find ultimate healing and wholeness. And then the grape juice, which is meant to symbolize wine, which is meant to symbolize his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This is where we find the ultimate victory over sin and death. So here at Trinity, we have four stations. The one in that back corner will be gluten-free, and then we'll have different ones. You come and partake.